we all have a work to do. And normally when we think of our work for the Lord, we think of things like missions trips or family camps or here on Sunday morning. But think about the rest of the week. I want to encourage you to think about your life in terms of a sphere of different pieces of the pie and whatever it is that you would consider to be your work, your career path, something you've chosen something you've fallen into or something God's led you to your career path, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or a way you gain financial means for you and your family. I want you to think about how much of your life that piece of the pie would uh, be characterized as in percentage terms. I think conservatively, if you take away your sleeping hours... Probably 50 to 60 percent at least would be that big slice of your pie. Now, think about that in terms of that without viewing that segment of your life as a ministry opportunity, as an act of worship. And then coming to the end of your life and adding up the numbers of hours that that would equal. That is a lot of time. A lot of energy, physically, emotionally, spiritually, a lot of finances, perhaps. That if not leveraged to the Lord is going to be burnt up at the judgment seat of Christ. Where we're issued rewards will just suffer loss. So as we head into uh, my privilege to lead us in this last series, at least from my perspective, as my time is coming to an end here. I'm looking forward to diving into seeing what God has to say about our work. I've been trying, albeit not very successfully, at times in uh, the midst of things coming in our future, the uncertainties there, to, to take time still to reflect upon the last 10 years and to give great thanks to God. And He's brought to mind several people and circumstances that I'm so grateful for that has really led me to worship and uh, has filled me with great satisfaction. So before we get into Ephesians and this next point of our study, I'd just like to share some personal thoughts from a time with, with you, uh, from a time that I had with the Lord this week. In Isaiah chapter 55, as a means of kind of a long introduction, but bear with me, I hope it'll make sense of why I'm spending this time doing this. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, if you want to follow along, page number 418, if you want to turn there in your pew Bible. But this is what it says, Isaiah, it's actually an invitation from God that Isaiah pens. He says this, Ho, everyone thirsts, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not, and here's one of the key words for this morning, satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So I believe it was Tuesday morning. I'm reading these verses and I've asked the Lord to speak to me and nothing's coming. 
I'm just frustrated. I'm stuck. Have you ever been there? You're wanting to hear from God and you're not hearing from him. And so I thought, well, maybe I should do what I encourage others to do. And I've, you know, this space pets acronym that I've taught different people to ask simple questions to hopefully identify things in the passage that will surface that you don't normally recognize just at a casual reading. So I was going through that. And by the way, if you'd like that resource, I could I would love to email you just a template that you could use. If you've never seen that, let me know in the back of your tear off. We'll email that to you. So I got to the P in that acrostic. Which. Has the question behind it, is there any promises here in this passage that I can claim? I'm asking that myself. And by implication, I immediately started thinking, wow, there's something great here. And that is, by implication, a promise that God offers us that there is, even in this sin-cursed world where work has a curse tied to it because of the consequences of sin, there still is an offer by God to us for a labor that satisfies and a promise to enter into that. And these are some observations I recorded as I was thinking about that question. It's a ridiculous notion that a person who is starving and suffering hunger pains would spend any money he might have on anything but bread or some kind of food. Material possessions are meaningless when you're hungry. And then I went on to write, it is in similar vein, being involved in a work that brings satisfaction to the soul is a staple need for human beings. So if time, toil and emotional, physical energy is invested in our work, if they were viewed as a commodity to spend, wouldn't it make sense that a person would invest in it? In places that would satisfy his satisfaction tank or fill it up. Like food fills the stomach. So you have this 60% of time. If God offers us an opportunity to worship him in a way that fills our satisfaction tank. Wouldn't we choose that just as if we would choose bread if we were hungry or food? The answer is yes, right? And don't you find within yourself some kind of longing for even deeper satisfaction in all the work that God has called you to do? I think we all all have that because we're innately wired that way. So if that's true, then why do so many of us just endure the grind and not try to leverage it for the Lord? Why do we at times feel very dissatisfied with our work. As we already alluded to, I think one of the reasons is because that's part of the curse of sin. You know, it's it's frustrating sometimes. There's not the progress maybe we'd like uh, to experience. You know, the, the sweat on the brow. We don't enjoy those types of things. There's always part of our labor that is going to be toilsome. But I also think that maybe we don't enter into the satisfying labor that God offers us, sometimes because we're operating under a different paradigm. So let's consider for a minute, for a few minutes, paradigms for work and different ways. Paradigm really is a way of seeing or thinking about 
reality. It's a lens through which we filter and interpret information, data, relationships, and other events in our lives. And so I'd like to cover, and this is not by an exhaustive list by any means, but just some paradigms that I've noticed myself and others viewing their work life through. And one of those is work as a vacation type of paradigm. Those who just, you know, their whole work life is about a party. Those who come in late or leave early that take really long breaks and they don't really accomplish much, but they're just there to have fun. They don't view their job as a great opportunity to worship, to benefit others and to seriously or studiously leverage that for the Lord. And I was just talking to a person yesterday that reminded me, you know, in this atmosphere and the curse of sin and the way people view things, at times there's some great injustices in this paradigm to where one person could work very, very hard. And then another person with a vacation mindset be promoted. Or exalted or, you know, experience perks that a hard worker doesn't. Just because there's a favorite relationship there or something. Work is a vacation paradigm. Another one that we operate from at times, and you've probably noticed this as well, people that you know, is a paradigm of work is our identification. This would be the, the proverbial workaholic. Where their only sense of identity comes from what they do in their work and what they accomplish, the goals and objectives that they achieve. And even those other things that they care about or say they really believe is important to them, like family, like worship, spiritual disciplines, serving Christ in the community or whatever it is, all gets pushed to a back seat. You know what the Bible calls that? An idol. Something that is loved, honored, or served more than God. So identification. Here's another one. Work is an obligation. It's a necessary evil. Something that we just need to do to survive, to make ends meet, to provide for the family. This might include people who even do their jobs very well. But they're not excited about it. They're kind of miserable, really. Have you ever worked with anybody like that? Have you ever been with someone like that? Or maybe you've been uh, that at times. It's interesting. Apparently, this describes more of our society and culture than we might think. As one Business Week article said that 83% of Americans are dissatisfied with their job. That's a high percentage. I believe it's a person who likes to eat at TGIFs. Thank God it's Fridays. Because they're just trying to get through the work week, looking for Friday night or the weekend or the next vacation or the next downtime. And they just endure. Here's another thought. Those who view their work as an exploitation. And they wouldn't call it that. They would call it a ministry. You know, these would be the rare Christians to their credit. This is a great credit. The rare Christians who view their entire work week as an opportunity to minister for Christ, 
to share the gospel. But here's the downside. Maybe so much so that their work suffers. Or when they're ministering, quote unquote, when they should be getting to finish a project or meet a deadline. And I've heard so many people talk to me about the Christians in their workplace and how that, you know, they might be praying for someone or evangelizing, but then their poor testimonies in terms of their work ethic. And so they're kind of exploiting their employers and their job for a ministry springboard without the work quality backing it up. These are paradigms that will not feed our need for a labor that satisfies. It will not bring the greatest glory to God that we can bring Him. So I'd like to, before we go on to examine one other one, talk of, speak to the, the summary of these things for a moment by an observation of the wisest man who ever lived. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14 Listen to his summary of his life and his labor. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. In other words, this is just useless. Might as well go back to bed. My my work isn't mounting to a hill of beans. What a dire strait. Of a perspective. Just as a side note, I was talking with someone about King Solomon recently, and I thought it was kind of humorous as I thought about him having 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, who wouldn't have a perspective on their labor if they had a thousand wives to please? And if and now I thought about this too. No wonder why he underwent so many construction projects. He had to find enough space and build enough closets to fit all those clothes and shoes in. That's meaningless. What a laborious labor under my under the sun. But it's interesting that though he accomplished so much in terms of building palaces and amounting material possessions and wealth and fame, even through his wisdom, that he would, in the rearview mirror, think, this is meaningless. Somewhere along the line, he was operating one of those other paradigms. And he lost the satisfaction that God offers in our work. He lost it in his work. And it's interesting And some other moments, this theme is woven throughout the whole book, but at other moments you see a verse like this in Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19. It's also reiterated in 3, 12 through 13. He says, then I realized that it was good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work. This is a gift from God. And isn't it interesting when when he gets to the point of what does bring satisfaction, what does bring meaning? He boils it down to two staples. 
The same staples Isaiah mentions. Food, drink, work. These are some of the greatest gifts from God that are meant to be enjoyed, are meant to be leveraged for his purposes. Unfortunately, King Solomon had to learn the hard way. And after trying to find satisfaction in many other pursuits, he realized that there was only one paradigm that really brings satisfaction. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But the reason I've called this short series Getting Over the Sun is a play in words of Ecclesiastes where he talks about the meaningless under the sun. If some of you are fans of Shane and Shane, the artist you might recall to mind, I think it's called Getting Over the Sun. And it's a story, it's a song about Ecclesiastes. And, and the chorus simply is sung over and over again. Get over the sun where life is hidden. And what they mean by that is get over the sun to see life and work from God's perspective, which Solomon voices right here. Focus on the staples, doing it well for his honor and his glory. One of those is work. So let's consider that over sun paradigm that we should be operating from. Work is a vocation. Not a vacation, not a sense of our only identification, not an obligation, not an exploitation. It's a vocation. And the Latin word for vocation is where we get our English word from calling. Isn't that interesting? In Ephesians 4, and let's go there if you're not there yet. Page 677 or thereabouts in your pew Bibles if you're using that. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, as a reminder, as a brief review of our study of Ephesians these last several months, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 discusses our heavenly position in Christ, has great doctrine there about how we should view ourselves and how we should work with others and In the context of God's grace, believe who we really are in him and act like it's true in our behaviors. But then in chapter four, verse one, in the rest of the book, he starts talking about how do we live this out, this heavenly position on a practical earthly level. And verse one, as a reminder, and here's the word we're just discussing, vacation or calling. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of what? The calling of. With which you were called. That encompasses the whole piece of our whole uh, sphere pie of our lives. Of which our income or that, that job that we have is included within that. A calling. Well, some of you might say, well, how can you talk to us about this, Pastor Dan? You only work on Sundays. You have the cushiest job in the world. Okay, so even if that were true, I just wanted to share. I was thinking, I just want to list, because my wife and I have uh, joked about this. I want to list the jobs that I've had. And I've 
So I hope you to humor me for a second. It's been an interesting ride as I've thought about this. I worked on a farm at McDonald's. I mixed and sold paint and hardware at Sears. I was a security guard, a dispatcher for the police department, a bank teller, a surveyor, a crew chief for a lawn maintenance company, a paralegal for a law firm, class coordinator of 80 instructors in different states, four different states, a compliance manager, and I even hawked perfume, cologne, and books and other gadgets on street corners in Kansas City. I've looked at that. I thought, how in the world is that possible? And uh, I don't know exactly, but I'm so grateful for all those experiences because each and every one of them taught me so many things. And you know what? There were times in those different positions I hated it. I didn't like my atmosphere. I didn't like my boss. I didn't like the people I worked with. And yet, as I look back, one of the things I don't think I lost perspective on is that even if I wasn't a pastor in the ministry, that every job I had was a ministry. It was an opportunity to glorify God, to worship him and hopefully in the process have a testimony for him and that had countless opportunities to share people, share Christ with people. That's one constant that never changes. Even if you're having a difficult, having difficulty in your job right now, you are a minister. God's placed you there for a reason. And that can bring great encouragement and comfort. So going back to what does a, a vocational paradigm look like? Well, here's some things I've written down as, as some thoughts. Someone who shares their Faith first and foremost by the quality of their work and the character of their life. Someone who operates out of a vocational paradigm is someone who desires to do a good job for their employer or their company, loves to serve people, even if it doesn't always turn into a witnessing opportunity. But, of course, who is always looking for opportunities and praying for opportunities to share Christ with people and will boldly seize them when they come without letting their work be sacrificed. Someone with a vocational paradigm endeavors to love their work and receive their work as a gift from God to enjoy and to use as an act of worship. So the one principle I'm going to look at today as we finally get to this long introduction to Ephesians 6 is this. Christians are to, and get this, obey and honor their supervisors, their boss, put whatever word you want there, as an act of worship. Now, how many people do you know that operate under this paradigm? Probably not many come to mind. Hopefully the ones that do are Christians. Let's look at it. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants or slaves, your translation might say, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that when whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, 
whether he is a slave or free. And then he switches gears, puts the crosshairs on the masters, their bosses, and you masters do the same things to them. Giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So we're just going to look at the first verse and unpack that today. The next week we'll look at the rest. As we read this, you probably noticed that there was no language in there about employer, employees, supervisors, or supervisees. (laughs) But if we were to take the principles of what Paul is saying in his culture and apply it to ours today, by implication, you could see the comparisons. Employers, masters, employees, slaves. Again, Christians are to obey and honor their supervisors as an act of worship. And you say, well, Pastor Daniel, how... Do I do that? You don't know my boss. He is the most cruel tyrant that you can ever imagine. The most paganistic person I've ever met. And you've never heard the foul things that comes out of his mouth. The most offensive things. I've, I just can't live with that. And you're, you're saying obey and honor that person? No, I'm not. God is, first of all. So think about that just for a second. But the other thing is this. Think about who Paul is writing to. Slaves. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire when Paul was writing this letter. Think about their situation. People who had terrible tasks to perform. Hard, cruel working conditions. Who were mistreated. And often beaten If they didn't do things exactly right. Paul is telling them. Get over the sun. Get a new perspective. A divine perspective on your life. And obey and honor them. Some of your translations might say respect and honor. Which is a good translation. So how do we do that? Well there's a few things that he says here. That I think will help us to do that but also show us what it looks like that obeying and honoring. Here's the first thing with fear and trembling. A sense of honor and respect. Not necessarily for how they treat you or the kind of person they view you to be, but you do this kind of thing. You respect and you honor because of the authority that God has sovereignly given them over you. I couldn't help but to think our, about our parenting series the last few weeks. Remember, as a parent, a grandparent, or even as a discipler of another person, one of the key objectives that we must focus on is getting them to or helping them to obey. Why? What, this is another reason why. Because when they leave our home... They are going to be under authority. Even if they own and operate their own business, they're under the authority of civil servants and other people. And so we need to help them to have this kind of mentality and practice in their life. Now think about it. 
60 million slaves, even if a small percentage of those slaves were to respond to Paul's instruction, respect and honor, even though maybe their taskmasters didn't deserve it, what do you think that would do in their culture? Tremendous ramifications, right? I want to share one story. I shared this for those of you at the breakfast a week ago yesterday. You notice in the bulletin the common pursuit luncheon this Thursday. Well, about six months ago, we had a breakfast. And we were talking about these principles from Scripture, respecting and honoring your supervisors and those you work with. And how do we do that? I was sitting at a table with three people from a local organization. They all worked together. One of them was their supervisor. The other two served on the same team with their supervisor. And they were pouring out their frustrations about the supervisor and the team along with this person that, that oversees them. And so we were brainstorming together. Well, what, what does this look like? Respect and honor. So one of them determined this is what she wanted to do. She wanted to go to her supervisor and first of all, just say thank you for the weight that you bear in the position that you have. And then she pointed out some things she did appreciate about that person and she went to them and did that. Thank you for this. And then she went at a step further and said, I have some things I'd like to share with you. But I want to do so in the context of I want to understand how I can better serve you and the team that you work with. Instead of a perspective like this is my complaint, you better deal with it. And in the in the conversation of that, she realized several things she she never understood before that gave her even greater appreciation for her supervisor and that team. And also, she gained great respect from her supervisor, and they have a great working relationship. And guess what? She, she was supposed to be getting let go, and she got to keep her job, and her supervisor got fired. You see, a lot of times, supervisors, presidents, managers, what have you, a lot of times when... An employee comes to them, it's complaint, 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 criticism, and in your face. Or they hear it through the grapevine that you were talking about them in the water cooler, by the water cooler with someone else, or in a corner of the office that it comes back to you, that person. What a difference it would make, like the illustration I gave, if a Christian went to their employer in a different way. Do you think that would cause them to take notice? Absolutely. What a testimony. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Many of those that Paul is writing to responded not only to the gospel, but the way of life God prescribed. And they not only changed life, they changed entire culture over time. And I mentioned this in the first service and and God's been uh, convicted me of this myself. We talked about it in our elders retreat a couple of weeks ago is that I think that we have a tendency as Christians to think way too small. You know, sometimes we think about as just our own little lives or maybe extend it to family. And I'd like to impact a few individuals when God is saying, 
I want you to do that, but I want you to change culture. That's what Christ came to do. Change not just lives, but a culture. Are we doing that in our workplace? Is your workplace dramatically different because of your presence that's living out the reality of Christ there? Or if someone were to come in as a consultant and ask tons of questions and interview everyone, would they see that you really don't stand out as being any different than anyone else there? In terms of character, work ethic, and otherwise. See, I may have shared this before, but my brother-in-law is coming into town in a, a week or so, This later this week. And when I, he owns his own business, and I was asking him at one point when we did the five principles seminar of Jim Dismore and outreach in uh, the community here, I said, I said to him, hey, how come you don't put something in your mission statement as a business person about using your business as an opportunity to serve Christ? And this is what he told me. He said, Dan, I know I should, but I just can't get to that place because there's so many other Christian business people in my community who have said they're going to do this or that or they've robbed someone and they have a terrible testimony. I don't want to be linked with them. Wow. With fear and trembling, what a difference that in itself would make if we could all have that respect and that honor and that humility of coming under to serve them. Secondly, Paul says, do it with a sincere heart. Not someone who just shows respect and onward, uh, honor outwardly, but also inwardly. Can't you tell a difference when someone's gritting their teeth and just kind of, okay, I'm going to submit to you, I'm going to honor you, versus a genuine thing. I couldn't help but to think of Eddie Haskell. Leave it to Beaver. Most of you, even if you weren't alive in that era, you might have seen reruns or so on. But he comes home after school with Wally and just lays on the charm to Mrs. Cleaver. Gee, Mrs. Cleaver, you look really dashing this afternoon. And what's that you're cooking in the kitchen? Some of the best aromas that I've ever smelled coming from that kitchen. And he goes on and on and on. What She doesn't reply at all. Why? Because she knows that he's smoozing her. People can tell if you're a Christian smoozer. They can see right through that. But they also can tell if it's a genuine thing. We've been talking about some principles of how it can be genuine, but here's another one. Think about this. When you do your work, do you do it with a complying, honoring, respectful spirit or a complaining spirit or a critical spirit? Take a look at this verse that's in your notes with Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. 
If you work with someone and they don't complain, they don't cuss, they don't have a critical spirit, you immediately notice that, don't you? It's a tremendous testimony. So important to our witness, and I believe that's a part of serving out of sincerity of heart. I'm grateful for this. I'm going to do my best. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to criticize. Well, some of you might be saying, I still don't know how to do that. Well, this last phrase, I think, is a tremendous help. As to Christ. As to Christ. As Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatsoever you do, word or deed, do it heartily as unto the Lord. You see, even when your boss, your supervisor, your manager doesn't deserve it, Jesus does. Jesus deserves it. And it can help us get over that hump and that difficulty we have. I can't do anything good or kind for that person the way they're treating me by saying to ourselves, kind of that self-talk going on, I'm going to do this for you, Lord. This is an act of worship for you. And as you pray and ask for his help, all of a sudden you you sense a strange empowerment and a peace and ability to do what seems impossible. Doing the will and work of God for the worth of God will launch us into a perspective and a performance. Living life over the sun instead of under it and saying like King Solomon did, this is meaningless, worthless. And instead start tapping into a labor that satisfies and brings great glory to God. Marshall Shelley said this in terms of worship. Worship is a personal response to divine revelation. Worship is a response to a divine revelation. You haven't worshipped until you have responded. So I'm going to ask Chris and the praise team to come up. I'd like for us to consider how God may want us to respond this morning so that we can enter into worship. My prayer is the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart something that he has revealed to you that he's asking you to do to respond to this message. And I'd like to just lead us in prayer and offer a a silent portion of that for you to just respond to God, ask God to speak to you something that He wants you to do in response. And we'll also be receiving our offering as a response, an act of worship to Him, offering our gifts and tithes as a way of thanking Him, obeying Him in our giving. Remember, Christians are to obey and honor their supervisors as an act of worship. What does that look like for you? Let's pray together. Father, examine our hearts. Lay on our hearts now one, two, three ways, Lord, that you would just really challenge us in our spirits to respond to this message as we listen in this moment to what you would have to say.
Oh, Lord God, we come to you. First of all, we want to respond just by thanking you for our work. It is a gift from you. For those of us that have health enough to work, that is a gift from you. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity that it is to worship you, even in the most difficult of positions sometimes that you place us in, in that work field. We want to ask you for help to live out the reality of this teaching, to obey, to honor, to respect those that you've placed over us, to serve them well and those that you've placed around us well in the hopes that perhaps, Lord, others would notice Just like when Daniel's work was evaluated and there was those that wanted to accuse him and find something to grab a hold of. And yet, I think it's in Daniel 6 where it says that there was no cause for negligence found in him. Wow. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us and more and more true of us in our future days. Lord, we want to thank you for our bosses, our supervisors, and and even when they might treat us harshly or unfair, when they promote others that are in the vacation paradigm, Lord, that we will still serve them well. We'll still speak of them well. We'll thank them even for what they do so that we would honor you even if they never change or even if they never say thank you, even if they never notice. Lord, we live not for the praise of men, but the praise of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, let us let that drive us in our service. Let us give us our all because that's what you deserve, not what our boss deserves. We ask you for wisdom. We ask you for boldness, discipline, whatever it takes to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.